this is Faith and Honor. I'm Father Bark Ingrick. If you like the show, we always appreciate a good review or share. We also have uh, Subscribestar and Patreon if you want to support us in that way. Today, we have a really special episode. As you all know, I always enjoy church history and historical theology. And with and joining me uh, is Dr. Michael Lynch. Dr. Lynch, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Uh, can you tell us a little about yourself, where you work, what kind of your specialty in terms of your studies is? Sure. My day job, I work as a classical uh, at a classical school here in Delaware. Um, I teach languages and humanities. Um, I also teach for the Davenant Institute, um, teach classes regularly there. Um, I did my PhD at Calvin Seminary in Historical Theology. I did my dissertation on John Davenant, uh, who was Bishop of Salisbury uh, in the early modern period. Very good. And that's actually what I want to talk about. We're going to talk about John Davenant, uh, Dort, and hypothetical universalism. And you've actually written a book on this subject that folks can get. Oxford University Press put it out, if I'm right. It is. Yeah, a few years ago now. Yep. Very good. Sell your kidneys, gentlemen. I know. It's, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, you can look in local libraries, theological libraries, too, depending on, on what your resources are. But I really want to get into understanding who John Davenant is. If he's a bishop of Salisbury, he's not uh, a fringe character uh, on the edges of the church. He's he's a leader in the Church of England. And what's his deal, and how does he end up in Dort, uh, uh, in, right. and what's going on with Dort anyway? Yeah, so he, he was born in London in 1572 um, to a fairly well-to-do family. Um, he went to Cambridge, was educated there all the way to a, a, a divinity degree, um, and then he was chosen to be Lady Margaret Professor of Theology at Cambridge. Uh, my date has it at, in 1609. Um, he, Lady Margaret Professor of Theology is pretty much the highest theological professorship you can get there. It was the same post that Erasmus was given in his brief time at Cambridge when he came to England. Um, so um, in 1618, um, uh, King James was helping to finance a theological debate that was happening in the Netherlands. It wasn't just a theological debate, which is precisely why King James was especially interested in it, although, uh, as many know, uh, he he wasn't ignorant of uh, theological education anyways. I mean, he was pretty well uh, theologically educated. Uh, However, um, it was a political debate that was happening in the Netherlands that was tearing them apart, Um, and it came in two forms, the Remonstrance and the Contra-Remonstrance, which is basically the Arminians in the Netherlands and the anti-Arminians in the Netherlands, and they fell along uh, both the the same theological and political sides. Um, And um, King James is particularly concerned both with the unity and peace of the Netherlands for political reasons, their allies, their Protestant. He has a lot of involvement with them already, and so he's financing uh, some of uh, the um, goings-on at Dort, and so um, he he envisions as well as the uh, Dortians themselves or the uh, the Dutch themselves to have kind of an international synod to deal with the uh, the remonstrant problem, and 
Um, and, and, and King James sides with the Contra Remonstrance. So he selects delegates to go to the Synod of Synod of Dort. Now, at the time in 1618, Davenant is still not a bishop. He's still the Lady Margaret Professor of Theology. And he is the theologian of theologians that he sends. He also does send a bishop. Uh, what is the bishop's name? Um, had I had I reminded myself of these things, I would have um, known that. Anyways, it doesn't matter. He sends a bishop as well. Um, uh, Carlton, right? It's Bishop Carlton, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, um, um, so Davenant, along with five Englishmen and one Scotsman, uh, or it's four and one, uh, go off to the Netherlands to participate in this debate. Um, the remonstrants don't want to play nice at the synod, so they get kicked out. And so now all it is is the only people participating are the people that are the contrary remonstrants, including someone like Davenant. And Davenant uh, sides with the contrary remonstrants as well. And, and, and this is how we get the canons adored, is that um, various people were selected um, to help draft them. And then each of these delegations, these foreign delegations, German, various Dutch delegations, English, they're all helping to draft the Canons of Dort. And then they eventually publish the Canons of Dort. And that's uh, why the Canons, we have the Canons. Right, right. And they exert really historic significance. Um, and, and in some sense, I think historians use it as kind of position of stability, or at least like you know, one of those those documents that that um, does kind of represent uh, provide uh, a, a, not a canon, but at least a, a guidepost or you know common understanding that is shared that brings order to an otherwise chaotic situation and has historic uh, significance down the line. Uh, there are documents like this throughout church history that do this sort of thing for various groups. Um, I I'm interested in the fact uh you talk about uh what did Davenant bring to the table uh at this uh at the synod and and possibly what were his um conflicts or or interactions with other counter remonstrants at the at there uh, yeah. as he's dealing with that because he he does provide some guidance um and he does have i won't say a full-on agenda but there are some things he helps uh with the process there yeah so um what he brings to the table most especially is he's one of the m most well-educated theologically at the synod uh, the synod is filled with a whole bunch of ministers there are some other professors most notably um some professors in the netherlands and then also some professors from geneva um were sent there was a genevan delegation and some of them are quite uh, able as well i mean everyone's able in the day so you know they're all reading latin and stuff right so but at the end of the day um he brings to the table particularly learnedness um he was known at the time various delegates mentioned this he was he was particularly an expert on the history of certain questions especially his knowledge of augustine was uh he, he was particularly known to know augustine's writings perhaps better than most and so oftentimes when the question arose what did augustine teach 
Davenant is the one that people are going to to ask. He also knew uh, various early church and medieval councils better than most. And so, again, that's what he's bringing to the table. Now, as far as an agenda goes, he does have an agenda, but that agenda, ironically enough, is not his own. It's King James's. So when King James sends the delegates, he gives them basically some certain mandates. One of the mandates that he wants is they're not to conclude anything that is anti the Church of England. So he can't go against the 39 Articles or the Common Book of Prayer or something like that, right? So they can't they can't say anything that's against that. Uh, another thing that he requ- requests is, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, something like he, he doesn't want them to say things he wants to things to be said at Dort that would perhaps promote unity with Lutherans. Um, and this is a this is a big thing. Davenant is really interested in bringing a kind of pan-Protestant Luther, by which he meant Lutheran and Reformed churches together. He thought that um if you could somehow reconcile on these points Lutherans, then Lutherans would be obviously more predisposed to uniting. Now, as we know, that really doesn't happen. Um, but um, that's kind of a, a a goal of his. So we could say um, uh, that the, the Davidence ends are to be anti-Arminian, because he does not like Arminianism, <laughs> uh, to, to say things in such a way that might be more placable uh, uh, for Lutherans to buy into, and then finally uh, to restate his interpretation of the 39 Articles. Right. Um, so he reads the third. He he does not believe or he expressly says that the five points taught at Dort, um, at least in their substance, is the Church of England's has was the Church of England's position since the Reformation. So he does not believe that Dort strays from the historic position of the Church of England from, you know, the 1550s onward. So, yeah. Well, this is interesting because, in some sense, often how a lot of Anglicans understand it is Dort might be within um, the broader range of the articles, but not the summary or, you know, the kind of summed up sensation of it. Right. And so you're saying, at least in Davenant's understanding, no, this is an accurate summary of, of the whole caboodle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's important to remember uh, Anthony Milton has a book on this that he came out with a couple of years ago. I actually have it around here somewhere. Yes, it's this. Um, it's called England's Second Reformation, the Battle for the Church of England from 1625 to 1662. And his whole thesis there is that um, before 1662 and the act of uniformity, uniformity. or conf- yeah. uniformity. Yeah. Um, uh, which basically was a particular side of the Church of England winning. Um, that that in the Church of England, what you had were just a whole bunch of groups, right? 
and that um, you had a whole bunch of groups that were vying for their version of what the Church of England ought to be. Right. Um, and you and those same groups are arguing over the history of the Church of England previous to 1625, 1662, previous history, right? So, you know, you have Davenant who's going to see it being more Calvinistic, and you're going to have some of the Laudians as understanding the history of the Reformation and the Church of England to be more Arminianizing or more high church or whatever. Anyways, um, it's important to remember that Davenant comes previous to 1662, right? I mean, he dies in 4041 and uh, right before the English Civil War. And so he um, he's vying within this panoply of various uh, Church of England theologians and ministers for a particular position. Um, to hold. Now, whether or not he would have been okay with 1662 or not, who knows? I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, I'm not even sure what sort of Episcopalianism he holds to, right? right. So Bishop Usher very famously holds to kind of a reduced kind of older Episcopal- uh, Episcopacy that he finds in the early church. And he finds what the Church of England was doing in the mid- 1600s to be somewhat bloated um and- actually well you could say that or he wants more bishops in a sense to more bishops to enact church discipline and care yes yeah, 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 yeah. which is yeah, actually it- when you say bloated you have to just describe there's actually in, in mm-hmm. usher's view there's not enough suffragans yes and there seems to be too much power relegated to too few people perhaps right. anyways right and not enough um, collegiality and cooperation yes. with the, the presbyterate yeah yes indeed and so anyways uh i don't know what davenant's position on that sort of thing would have been i don't even know if usher's writings on such things were available to him right because um, i don't know when usher actually writes on usher that, but- does more of that closer to the civil war right and so he he may not even have seen that known about it whatever anyways all that to say is that um yeah i mean uh yeah. that davenin sees what door is doing and that kind of trajectory uh to be the reformed church uh on these topics so right right you know, well that's yeah. well that's helpful to understand and i'm glad you brought in some of that historiography with regard to the vying groups leading up to 62 um that's a, a really uh, helpful, you know. There's a lot of stuff that we could analyze with that, but it's it's helpful to understand. Avenant comes before a lot of that is concluded, and also um, it's it's interesting to me that um, you know it, you, you mentioned Usher, Usher and Davenant. Do they have communication together? Yeah. So this is difficult to assess. Back if Baxter Richard Baxter's to be believed. Um, Davenant learned his hypothetical universalism literally from Usher face to face. We do not, I am not aware of any independent evidence that corroborates that. 
Okay. However, Baxter said that Usher told him that. So you you have it's kind of hearsay, but it's hearsay that the person that said he saw Davenant face to face told Baxter. So if you believe Baxter, which I I do, I, I have right. no reason to believe that he would be lying about that. Uh, then then yes, and I guess that would have happened sometime when he was Lady Margaret Professor of Theology between 1609 and when he goes to Dort. Right. Right. Before we hop, actually, I want to talk more in depth theologically about hypothetical universalism. Before we do that, it is interesting. We were talking before the episode was started recording about actually uh, Dort doesn't get adopted uh, by the Church of England. You know, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't get uh, I actually don't know if the words ratified or what, um, but. Uh, you were explained to me why that failed uh, to make passage uh, here, or not here, but in the uh, in the um, Church of England, and I and I'd like to actually you like share that again because it was interesting to me. There's there's a lot of politics wrapped up, not just theology. Yeah, yeah. So so when they get back, um. There's kind of a de jure de facto thing going on here. When 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 James uh, is on the throne until 24, 25, um, obviously James sends these delegates to do this, and he seems satisfied with what they did. There, there's no reason to, like, I know of no nothing that suggests that he was dissatisfied with what they did. Now, it's never adopted as a confessional document in the Church of England. Um, however, there was a push when kind of in England, there started becoming an Arminianizing kind of uh, tendency among certain bishops and ministers in these sorts of things in the Church of England in the 1620s. But by that point, uh, Charles I has taken the throne. Charles I is definitely not interested in that stuff. And moreover, he is he is putting into position bishoprics and the Archbishop of Canterbury and these sorts of things, folk that are more high church. And usually with that uh, comes um, an Arminianizing tendency. There, There's also a latitudarian kind of thing going on where debates on predestination seem to be silly and, you know, they'd rather be interested in debating like whether you should kneel at the table um uh, some of these bishops then then predestination um anyways uh you have a whole bunch of stuff being published in the 20s in england on predestination and on things like that and it's becoming really heated uh james in 1622 says um to laity that he doesn't want things published on these debates or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the decree was. Well, when G Charles gets on the throne in 1620, uh, in 1625, in 1626, he orders that all debates, regardless of who you are, you should not be preaching on these uh, hot topics in your preaching and he doesn't want you really talking about it. And then in 1628, there's another decree saying basically the same thing. Um, and so this kind of puts a kibosh on 
these sorts of debates. Now, at around those same times, uh, some of the delegates that went to Dort and others are interested in publishing uh, the canons of Dort, or the uh, the the canons of Dort and the suffrage. Uh, that the Church of England or that the delegates at Dort wrote, which is their own version, we might say, of what they wanted the canons to be if they wrote them themselves. And they published these things, 1628 or 1626, 1628, 1629, 1630 or something like that. They keep publishing them um, in English. And the idea there is it's particularly for people that uh, are in England. Um, at the time, but and there does seem to be this push to try to get the Church of England maybe to adopt um, these uh, as a confessional document. But under Charles, that was that was unlikely, and it became increasingly unlikely as those at Dort are now seen to be the Puritans, uh, pro-Puritan, and the pro-Puritans in the Church of England are more on the side of the Contra Remonstrance and what Dort said. And so it, it seems unlikely to me that Charles would ever have been okay with adopting them. And so that just, that just wasn't going to work out. Yeah. I was, I was interested in your thoughts on that. Um, we could go down further. I want to like, I, I would like to hear more of that because this part of history is fascinating to me. It's very painful and fraught with division, but um in any case, I do want to actually track back and understand what the position of hypothetical universalism is, because when you first hear it, it's very uh, off-putting in terms of a label, because we're not supposed to like universalism. Uh, so what do you mean by hypothetical universalism? What is that well, position? Well, if you were to ask Davenant that, he'd have no idea what you were talking about, because that term wasn't in use while he was writing on these topics. Right. It has become a term used by historians it what it is it does date back to the period it was the term that the anti hypothetical universalists that were reformed gave to the position that uh Moses Amiro and some of these other guys in France their position and what they were teaching uh usually historians nowadays talk about a distinctly english hypothetical universalism as opposed to kind of what arose around the same time, although actually a little bit later in France. Uh, but at, at the very root of it is the win willingness and uh, uh, to affirm both that Christ died for all people, i.e. sufficiently, and also while also affirming the Calvinistic doctrine or the particularly Calvinistic doctrine that he died for the elect alone efficaciously that that in other words that at the death of Christ there were two intentions one intention was to make a universal satisfaction for all men's sins such that all people are all people's sins are now forgivable because a satisfaction has been made on for those for all people's sins but also an affirmation that he merited, Christ in his death or in his whole work, but, you know, uh, metonomically we could use, uh, speak of just his death, that he merited by his death um, all these saving graces that would actually be effectually applied to the elect alone, such that the elect alone, oh, 
only will receive that saving effectual grace. Some of this goes all the way back to Peter Lombard, if not Augustine. And, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of efficacious for all, sufficient for Actually, sufficient for all, efficacious for some. Um, I, I know. I think Lombard has that, um, and that kind of distinction is going on. But you know, where does Calvin sit with that? Does he add something there? Is he narrowing things down from there? Is he just no, recapitulating no, Cal- that? Calvin's Calvin's position and Davenant's position are the same. I mean, indeed, Davenant. I mean, Lombard. Sorry. Oh well, I think. Yeah, I. I Lombard doesn't actually write all that much. I mean, it becomes his little dictum because he formulated it in a way that other medieval theologians liked. And so they kept (laughs) referencing it, but you know, he, he doesn't actually write that much on it. Um, Aquinas writes a lot on this, both on his commentary on Lombard and in his summa. Um, um, uh, So anyways, um, yeah, I mean, I argue in my book that Davenant's read that basically his position was not only the major- majority position in the um, early church, it was the position of Augustine and Prosper, um, Prosper being the lay layman who kind of is most well known for defending Augustine. He's a half contemporary. He 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 was like younger when and then Augustine dies and he just kind of carries on the defense of Augustinianism, particularly on predestination and these topics. Um, anyways, throughout the medieval period, Davenant thinks that his position is largely either consonant with, if not exactly what the majority of the church had said. But Davenant's not just also concerned with arguing that. Although being being a Church of England man, given the 1571 decree to preachers to preach nothing that's not in the Bible, and that I think it says basically like the early church taught, um, he, he's particularly concerned to hold the things that were taught um, in the early church. But because he's reformed and because he sees himself as part of the, a broader international reform community, he is also concerned with arguing that basically – Earlier Reformed theologians, uh, particularly like a Calvin, um, uh, although he names plenty of others, um, their position on this topic is precisely his position. So, yeah. All right. Well, good. That's a good kind of intro summary to to what is going on. Within the other Reformed folks that show up at Dort, are there other views? Is there something that is perhaps a narrower view or a narrow rendering that, you know, falls afoul of what Davenant yeah. is trying yeah. to push? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, da- Davenant at Dort, um, he has some biases, um, interests, as I already noted uh, previously, that are, are are causing him to want to be as careful with the language as they can, because in polemical language, as we know, um, you can you can say things in ways that may be true, but are said in harsher sorts of ways than ought to be. And so um, when it comes to the death of Christ, this is one of these areas he does not want. Well. 
because he believes that the Church of England or that he his own position, his hypothetical universalism is the Church of England's position on uh, on the um, uh, on the extent of Christ's atonement. Indeed, Article 31 expressly say, states that um, he the oblation of Christ was for the sins of all people, both original and actual. Right. And so. Right. He thinks that he, he he cannot allow some of the reformed folk, which is actually the majority of folk at the Senate of Dort to expressly deny that position. So so what he does is he uh, basically makes sure him and the rest of the English delegation make sure that they affirm what everyone agrees on, which is that Christ died for the elect alone efficaciously, and then not deny, and he would have wanted it affirmed, but he was not going to get his way given how 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 minority he, there they were like, I mean, if there were like a hundred delegates, there were only like 10 that would have held to his position, his hypothetical universalism at door. And so he was not going to get them to affirm that Christ died for all people sufficiently or that he died for all people's sins or something like that. So he wanted a strong free offer the gospel. He gets that and um and, and basically makes sure that all of their language allows for the hypothetical universalism that the Church of England, he thinks, expressly teaches that anyone in the Church of England that holds to the 39 Articles could still affirm the canons adore. And that's what he does. It's interesting because um, I was just kind of thinking, especially some of the Swiss, were there Swiss at the Dort? Yeah, the Swiss were one of the strongest. Yeah. They were getting so frustrated with the English delegation. I was going to say, I was thinking because, Puritan. Because the English delegation was seen to be very persnickety about, right? All these guys are traveling a long way from their home, except for the Dutch, right? Uh, are traveling a long way. They're living without their families. They're just hoping, let's get this done and let's go back home. And the English are spending two or three weeks debating these adverbs that are being drafted with regard to the second article. And we have these letters from the Swiss saying, we thought we were going to get this done weeks ago, and the English just keep annoyingly being right. persnickety and very precisionist about some things that most of us think is unnecessary to fix right but but because uh king james is paying for this right right whole affair hotel california because, because the english have so much sway at the at the on the political side of things they can't they can't just you know give a proverbial middle finger to the to, to the english right they can't they can't um uh kick them out or they can't just right. say, we're just going to do it anyways. Or right. else King James says, no, this whole thing's off. Right. right? Because all the English delegation has to do is write to King James back or his secretary or whatever and say, they're not they're not letting us do what we need to do. They're making us say things that the Church of England wouldn't affirm and so on and so forth. So, right. Because you know. I was thinking some of that narrower position that does not like talking about sufficiency there. 
Um, there are several figures in the Swiss church that certainly would lean that way, right? I mean, a lot of, of big-time leaders, both around Dort and after Dort, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't like some of the the concerns there. What what maybe what Davenet would espouse or emphasize? I don't. Oh know. no, yeah. I mean, and th- and this really, uh, we uh, it's uh, Beza really is to blame for this. Now, um, I I give Beza a lot of sympathy because he was pressed in in a debate with a Lutheran. Um, back in the 1580s to address some of these topics. And I think he arguably used harsher language than probably he ought to have. Um, but anyways, he basically denies the proposition, Christ died for all men sufficiently. Now, no no one, none of the Reformed are denying that Christ's death in its e- internal value is sufficient for all people. That's not what's at debate. The debate is really whether or not there was an intentionality to actually send the second person, the Trinity, to die on behalf of all men or not, or to make satisfaction for their sins. And so that's really what's at debate. And they do not like, uh, the, the, especially the Swiss, but but most of the Dutch do. Um they don't they don't like it either. There's some Germans actually that like the hypothetical universalism. Ger- Ger- Germany mm. in the 1600s uh because of people like David Piraeus and Ursinus and these sorts of things, uh there's a there's a rich tradition of kind of a hypothetical universalism or the wanting to affirm that Christ died for all sufficiently but not not in the Netherlands and not in Switzerland. That's so. fascinating. Yeah. Um well, that's really helpful because it, it it helps deal with some character caricatures and misunderstandings that I think occur in discourses today. This is a total uh, what if for you, and if you don't want to, you know, it's like I don't have an opinion on that. That's fine. I was kind of wondering the fact that Dort doesn't address sufficiency, you know, with a lot of yeah, it only affirms that internal sufficiency that is right. death is of infinite value. Uh, right. But yeah, it doesn't actually say that Christ died for all. Do you, do you think that has like a reverberating influence down through history about like the reformed world, like the fact that that wider thing wasn't affirmed, and you know, you think of Presbyterians, Dutch Reform, Swiss Reform, German Reform. Is does that? Do you think that actually that that sort not full on silence, but partial silence? Uh, ha- has had an effect on popular expressions, understandings. Well, maybe, I don't, maybe not. I actually, I actually think that most people that read Dort don't appreciate the carefulness of some of the language in this on the second article or the second okay. doctrine. Um, and uh, they they're uncareful. And what they'll say is it affirms prop- proposition A, namely Christ died for the elect alone efficaciously, and then they will illogically or illegitimately conclude from that that then it also denies proposition B. But my argument would be that proposition A and proposition B are two different propositions, and they're not necessarily connected to each other, right? And so that's my that's my problem. It's a it's a problem of people not carefully reading. And then this is compounded by the fact that people actually don't know the internal 
machinations that went behind the scenes into drafting it. So if you know, so in, in my dissertation, what I do is I show, I go through every draft of the second article And then, which is on the death of Christ, by the way, if people don't know why I keep saying the second article, that's on the death of Christ at Dort. There's five articles. Anyways, that's the second one, right? Um, If you you watch how the language is changing over these drafts, and then if you watch whose language is modifying the, what they, what, what uh, Bogerman, who was the head who originally wrote the first draft of the Canons of Dort, uh, who was not a hypothetical universalist, if if you watch how the English are basically um, revising it, you will see that they're creating space for their own position um, the whole time. That's all they're doing is creating space so that their position could be affirmed, or, uh, could be that they could affirm all the language affirmed while also affirming the things that are not affirmed, right? Uh, that that would be a better way of putting it. Um, now, ultimately, people don't know these things because you, you have to read manuscripts written in Latin, handwritten manuscripts, watching these drafts and reading letters between various folk where they're talking about these debates as they're going on. We only have, we only see the conclusion and, we don't actually understand. Uh, I think most people don't understand well, uh, kind of the diversity of positions in the period, um, and they collapse the affirmation that Christ died for all sufficiently with the affirmation that Christ's death is sufficient for all. Those are two different claims. Uh, people that know their English well should probably be able to figure those out. One is modifying a noun so it's an adjective modifying a noun the other one is an adverb modifying an action right these these are all important but people don't people don't see the importance of language as well so perhaps people just need to become better at their english um uh so anyways i think there's all sorts of reasons had well obviously if hypothetical universalism had become adopted it would have created havoc in the reformed church because you had some churches, many French churches, French Reformed churches, many German Reformed churches, the English, uh, who would have been fine with it by and large. And then you would have had the Swiss and the Dutch uh, and the Belgic uh, kind of groups who would have hated it. And then it wouldn't have become a compromise document. But what we have is a compromise document. That's actually what you want. You want a document where all the reformed that were anti-Arminian could agree with it while allowing for the diversity within the contra remonstrance. And that's what we ended up getting. So it seems to me a good document. It's unfortunately been misread because people aren't good at English and because um, people don't really understand the precise nuances of those debates as they happened within the reformed community well i think people when they often refer to it whether one side for or against um they they have a kind of overriding interest in not noticing the nuances because we like to use it as as a a means by which to engender conflict indeed yes it is often used more as a 
as a um, a, a a piece of wood against someone's back, right? Then seen as a seen as a larger set of truths within which we can allow diversity. Right. Right. Well, um, Dr. Lynch, I want to thank you for your time and for your thought and your expertise and also for your study on these things. Fascinating stuff. Um, if you can get his book, get it. Um, Michael Lynch, thank you so much for talking to us about John Daffinet, Hypothetical Universalism and Dort. Really great uh, church history. Fascinating. And I hope those of you listening have enjoyed it as well. Uh, well, that will wrap up our show today. We hope that uh, you've enjoyed uh, this conversation. If you like this one and you want more like it, let me know and make comments on our various platforms, and we'll try to keep uh, producing uh, that kind of helpful content. But until then, uh, until we meet again, we uh, wish you God's blessings and good day. <laughs>